like you now to take your Bibles and join with me as we're back into our series in the book of Galatians that will take up until roughly the time of Easter, Sunday before Easter. So, And here we find in eight verses, Galatians 3, verse 15, down through verse 22, some of the most intensely packed logic that you and I are going to come across in the scriptures that pertain to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means then we are going to have to mentally engage ourselves to follow the flow of Paul's thought processes as guided by Holy Spirit. We want to make certain that when God wants to take us into not the shallow end of the pool, but the deep end, that we are willing to go where he wants us to go and swim where he wants us to swim. And uh, generally speaking, many consider this more the deeper end of the pool. So in eight verses, you and I find that there is intensely condensed logic that's produced for you and for me to process, all of which pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's check it out. Beginning now in verse 15, And reading it down all the way through verse 22, we find these words. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Now what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Are you with me now? What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Question. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, eight verses of condensed logic all of which is dripping gospel. 
and requires us now, if we're going to be able to fully appreciate and value the Scriptures, to sometimes go into the deeper end and allow for God to show us all that's meant to be experienced and, and understood there. And to do that, we're going to start by looking to God in prayer. Father, we begin by praying, of course, for all of our students who have chosen to be part of this gathering, Green Bay, this weekend. For the Free Church District staff, we pray that you will guide them administratively. We pray likewise for our own staff that are there, that you will give them incredible insight on how to connect truth, your word, to needs in students' hearts. To be willing to listen carefully and respond wisely. For us in these three morning services, and then again tonight, we realize that there is a spectrum of people. Many love Jesus, want to go deeper. There are others who are what we have sometimes referred to as religious unbelievers, Father, who have a a religious background and heritage, but have not put faith and trust in Christ. There are others that have a secular background, we call secular unbelievers, who don't have scripture or religion as a starting point in their everyday life personal experience. Father, we have to be able to understand the starting points of communicating the gospel to the religious unbeliever, which may be different than the starting point of communicating the gospel to the secular unbeliever. Guide us this morning and then in the course of these days to come to determine quality and wise starting points of communicating grace. We pray that in there in this service that they come to saving faith in Christ. Now you know the needs that are here. You know what keeps us awake at night. You know what weighs on the mind about houses and about family matters and about job situations and schooling. But there's a beautiful thing about coming together collectively like this. We find a common core in the fact that we're coming to the one who is over all, knows all, governs all. So, Father, I pray now that you warm our hearts, engage our minds, shape our wills, Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the mid-1980s, and I was sitting in my office. There was an appointment that had been made for me with a man by the name of Charles Namey. Charles had just been relocated to Connecticut. And he and his family were beginning to look for a church. 
and he made it a point to go to various churches to interview the senior pastors. As he introduced himself and sat down, he informed me he didn't know how long he'd stay in New England because he got transferred repeatedly. Yet he was burdened to be able to find a church for his family. And he said, I have one critical question. I want to know whether or not this congregation is committed to the truth of the gospel. And he paused and looked me in the eyes. He then used follow-up questions. I want to know, will my children in Christian education hear the truth of the gospel? Will I have the assurance that my teenage children will hear the truth of the gospel? And will we as a family, when we are involved in worship, hear from the pulpit the truth of the gospel? His questions resonated with my heart because evidently he must have spent some time in the book of Galatians. Because what you find in the opening chapters is that the truth of the gospel is a phrase repeatedly used by Paul to be able to explain to those who would embrace the counterfeit false gospel what the true gospel truly entails. Now, as a senior pastor, I'm burdened, and we have review preview with staff members on Mondays from the early portion of the day until late at night, and on in, of course, into Wednesdays, where various individuals have to oversee Christian education, youth ministries, and on and on. And in our review preview session, the burden is, how are we effectively communicating the truth of the gospel? which is the issue, the burning issue, I think, in America today, and certainly the burning issue that's on Paul's heart. So with that in mind, what I want to do now is to get our arms around the truth of the gospel because there is condensed eight-verse logic that is flowing that needs to be understood and applied to everyday life. And two gospel distinctives stand out for us now to work through together And the first, we're going to phrase like this, that number one, by upholding the truth of the gospel, we emphasize the priority, the priority of God's promise. You say, well, Gary, help me to understand. Well, better yet, let's ask Paul to help us to understand and dig in. Notice now in verse 15, Paul says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. There are three arguments, three arguments that Paul is going to utilize in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Three arguments to be able to drive home the idea of the truth of the gospel. In verse 15, he utilizes what you and I would call a legal argument. It's taken from the idea of a will in the Roman Empire, where a will is being read to the heirs, and now they are finding what exactly it is that they are inheriting. And Paul is using a legal illustration of an eternal truth 
that believers are heirs who are children of Abraham, who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are heirs. But we have to be very careful then to understand the nature of the will. He says in verse 15, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. He connects with where people are at on an everyday basis, as should you and as should I. Just as no one can add, set aside or add to a human covenant that has been as duly established, so it is in this case. So now, it's almost as if he's staring down his opponents, the religious unbelieving Judaizers, who are scripture-twisting, legal-twisting, when it comes to matters of the Old Testament. And now he's saying, let's use an example of everyday life, of a will. And there are two major components I want to remind you of. Number one, we cannot set what is written aside. And number two, we cannot add to what is written. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case now. Now the people are beginning to listen. Because they know that God has established a covenant with the Jews. And they know furthermore that from their understanding of the Older Testament in Genesis chapter 15, when God established a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, he had an animal sacrificially via the decision-making process. But Abraham now has the animal... And it's cut in half, God cuts it in half, and then passes through the pots. Abraham did not pass through those pots. Only God did. Only God. Which means then, legally, this is what was known as a unilateral, not a bilateral covenant. And in essence, what God was saying is, If I go back on my word, if I go back on my word, what happened to that animal will happen to me. I will cease to exist. That is how certain God's covenant is, how certain God's word is to you and to me. Now, logically speaking, God is eternal. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That means then his word, likewise, is unchangeable. God cannot lie. He is the God of truth. Therefore, his covenant is established and valid. They're taking a deep breath. They're beginning to ponder because they know that Paul is going to lead them down a path where their version of the gospel is going to be confronted by the true biblical gospel that Paul is articulating. And likewise, now in 2014... What you and I have got to do is to survey the canvas of this country and beyond and ask where are there counterfeit alternative gospels and what arguments could I utilize, even from everyday life, to be able to draw people's attention to the fact that grace is unconditional and you cannot tamper with God's will. Can't add to it. Can't subtract from it. And it's right there 
in the scriptures. Now, once he's utilized his legal argument as a starting point, and always tried to determine what is your starting point, if your heart beats like mine, is to share the gospel one-on-one with people. Once he uses that as a starting point, he doesn't use it as an ending point. So determine your starting point, but continue on. He moves from a legal argument in verse 15 to what? A historical argument in verses 16 and 17. Now, he goes on to say at this point, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He's got their attention. His opponents, people known as the Judaizers, were attempting to say, you have to add to God's grace. In other words, you've got to add to what Christ did on the cross. What Jesus did was insufficient. Jesus needs my works added to his work. Now, What Paul is going to do at this point is this. He's got their attention. He's moved from the contemporary scene of the legal argument to now the historical scene, historical argument, and he takes them to who they value, Abraham. They viewed themselves, didn't they, as children of Abraham. He's got their values in mind. He's connecting. Do you connect? But notice here, he utilizes the word seed. Because even when Jesus' opponents challenged him, they viewed themselves as children of Abraham. Now, by utilizing that word seed, do you see it right there in that particular verse? The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. When Eve had sinned against God, as had Adam, Eve was promised in a gospel presentation that her seed, would crush the head of the evil one. That was a foretaste of the cross of Jesus Christ, but the word that was used there was seed, elsewhere translated in other versions as descendant. When Abraham was promised by God offspring, the word again that was used was seed. Now they are thinking collectively, But now notice what Paul does because he realizes that the Hebrew word that can be used for collective seed can also be utilized as singular seed. And now using their own reasoning skills, says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed meaning one person, who is Christ. Brilliant. Listen to the I wills. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then later, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, literally seed, I will give this land, modern-day Palestine. This is an unconditional promise. And by stating 
the promise. What Paul is doing at this point is he's arguing for grace. It says, I will, I will, I will. He does not say, you must, you must, you must. It's his starting point. He'll get there when he gets to Moses, where Moses heard words from God saying, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. But understand, God said, I will, before he said, thou shalt not. Genesis precedes Exodus. Do you see the historical argument now he's utilizing to be able to make the case that grace precedes works? That Abraham precedes Moses. That the I wills of God preceded the statements of thou shalt, thou shalt not statements of God. And he uses this then to keep weaving, moving things forward till he gets to the place where historically he points then to Christ. Now then what we do is we ponder legal arguments, and then we use historical arguments. We even ponder what's happening in the Middle East and that I will statement. And why are things still percolating in the Middle East as they were back then? Because of the great I will statements. But all of this points, of course, to Jesus Christ. It's an oft-told story. It's a great story. Extremely wealthy man. He possessed a vast treasure of art. Man had one son. Just one son, ordinary son, passed away in his late teens. And having loved him deeply, the father died only a few weeks later. The father's will provided that everything would be sold by auction. And strangely, the father stipulated that an oil painting of son was to be the first item offered by the auctioneer. Large crowds gathered together to bid on this widely reputed collection of art. But in keeping with the proviso of the will, the boy's portrait was first held up for bids first. No one bid on it. No one. Set aside, all of a sudden, an elderly woman raised her hand, came up, asked if she could simply take the picture. She held it up, and everybody knew her to be the one that had cared for that son in his younger years after his mother had died. She wanted to take the picture home with her, when all of a sudden, lo and behold, the auctioneer noticed that there was something bulging in the back of the portrait. Opening up what was in the back before handing this off, he realized the entire will was articulated there and stated that whoever was willing to love the son, as seen in this picture, would receive the entire inheritance of this man. Now what Paul is saying here, both legally and historically, is that our inheritance is based upon our relationship to God's son. 
We cannot buy favor from God. We are recipients of grace. The I wills of God preceded the thou shalt, the thou shalt nots. Abraham preceded Moses. Grace preceded law. Genesis preceded Exodus. And lo and behold, now you can almost see his, his scripture-twisting opponents now on the defense of backing up. Paul's leaning forward. He's got more to say historically. What I mean is this, verse 17. The law introduced 430 years later. He wants you to be able to see the before and the after. What came first, what came second. Does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. When you see the word promise, put in parenthesis, grace. The I wills of God. He's saying, in essence, that just like Adam and Eve were saved by grace, not by works, they hadn't even received the law as of yet. How then you Judaizers could argue that you're saved by keeping the law? If Abraham himself was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15, and who was the author of Genesis? Moses, in the mindset of the Jews. Would Moses contradict himself and put Genesis against Exodus and Abraham against Moses? He's arguing for the consistency here, and he's rooting it in God's holy, righteous, true nature. And you're, and you're, and you're awed. The way in which he's now weaving together a legal argument, the historical argument, and he's saying this covenant, Unconditional. This covenant. It's unalterable. This covenant. It's unending. But once you and I have dealt with the legal argument, verse 15, and the historical argument in verses 16 and 17, he's taken the entire Old Testament basically and condensed it to a few verses. He's making history relevant. Then he moves to his third argument what you and I would call the theological argument in verse 18. He brings it home. He's going to put some food on the table here now. For if the inheritance, back to that idea of inheritance, depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. You see, the Jews viewed themselves as children of Abraham, not children of Moses. If that's the case, then why shouldn't they recognize you're saved by grace and not by works? Let's talk about my Uncle Gordon for a moment. For promise to bring a result, it needs only to be believed. For a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. 
Now let's say my Uncle Gordon wants to meet you and give you $10 million. Where he's got it, I don't know, frankly. haven't seen it. But let's say my Uncle Gordon wants to meet you and give you $10 million. Well, the only way you can probably fail to receive the $10 million is to fail to believe the claim. You can laugh it off and go home rather than going to see my Uncle Gordon. You may never get the money. But if, on the other hand, I said to you, my Uncle Gordon's willing to leave you his inheritance of $10 million, but you have to go live with him and take care of him in his old age, but then you have to fulfill the requirement condition if you're going to get the money. What Paul is saying here is you don't have to take care of Uncle Gordon here. This is all a matter of I will. It's not a matter of thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's an issue of grace. It's not an issue of works. It's meant to be believed. The moment you Judaizers attempt to argue for salvation on the basis of works, or in their twisted thinking, some form of merited grace, that's a contradiction. Basically, what you are arguing for, then, is the insufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. The secular unbeliever views Christ's work as unnecessary. The religious unbeliever views Christ's work on the cross as insufficient. What Paul is now showing, legally, historically, theologically, All of this is flowing out of the great I will of God. The great I will. The God of grace. The God of promise. Look for those promises in the Old Testament. The I wills to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. And begin to think very carefully of what it means. Paul stood before a particular governor... In Acts 26, verses 6 and 7. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial here today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. As they earnestly serve God day and night, that God raises the dead. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, when God made his promise to Abraham, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and give you many descendants. Hebrew word, seed. In Romans 4, verse 13, it's not through the law that Abraham and his offspring, literally seed, received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, And so now, Paul, knowing how much they value the idea of being children of Abraham, he looks at what they value and takes them back to Abraham. And in the process, introduces the God of Abraham to them once again. Isn't this incredible? I mean, really, this is grace. This is the legal, historical, theological reasoning packed into now we've just covered four verses. 
as Paul is basically taking them on a tour of their Older Testament. By upholding the truth of the gospel, we emphasize the priority of God's promise, just put in parenthesis the word grace after the word promise, because starting with Eve, God said, I will, not you must. So now, the Judaizers, the ones that want to add to Christ's work on the cross, the ones that want to distort the concept of grace by adding their works because they fail to take into account the sinfulness of sin, the depravity of human nature, still believing their religious works are, 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 are valuable to this matter of salvation, are beginning to scratch their heads, aren't they? And they're beginning to ask questions such as, well, then what is the purpose of the law? Paul anticipates their questions. So in verse 19 through 22, here's your second gospel to distinctive. That by upholding the truth of the gospel, second of all, we recognize the purpose of God's law. He knows they're then wrestling with them. What is the purpose? I mean, if, if what we've been saying all along, that you are saved by keeping the law, is not valid, what is the purpose of the law? Because Moses is in that Older Testament, isn't he? And, and, and Paul would say, well, of course. Of course. So you know what he does? You know what Paul does here? He engages the Galatians, what I'm going to call here a Q&A session. Question and answer sessions. There are two Q&A sessions he uses in the next four verses. Let's camp on them. The first Q&A session is found in verse 19 and again in verse 20. Notice in verse 19, the Q, the question. What then was the purpose of the law? In other words, he's anticipating them saying, well then, what's the point of it? It's in the Old Testament. It's a great question. Notice the answer. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Notice that it says it was added because of transgressions, the law. It does not say it was added because of sin, does it? Why? Why? Because transgressions is a legal term. People sinned before the law was delivered to Moses. Adam and Eve sinned. But when the law was delivered... When the law was delivered, what God was doing at this point is that he was establishing in the mindset of people legally that they have transgressed the law of God. They have transgressed the standards of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we need a measure to be able to understand the fact that we are not what we want to be. We are not what we ought to be. We are not righteous. No, not one. And without some measure, we wouldn't be able to understand transgression. It was a legal term. So God was gracious then to give the law so that you and I might be able to recognize we are sinners 
in need of the great I will, found in the form of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of promise. You see what he's doing here? You see the wisdom of these verses? Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, and notice that it's capitalized, the seed, because the same word was used to describe the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so shall your descendants be, so shall your seed be, and so on. The same is true for David in Second Samuel as, as well. Love what C.S. Lewis once said. No one knows how bad they really are until they try to be really good. But to put it another way, let me introduce you to three men. John Newton, Lewis Weatherford, Samuel Preston. Years back, they were on their way to New York to hang out, enjoy the sights. And they hailed a cab and got to the Ambassador Hotel. And as the cab drove off, the three men stared at the site of this 29-floor building, made their way in, and said, give us the best you got. It was the top floor. Everything they could have wanted. It was prior generation. Key was handed over to them. They were ushered up, led to the elevator. After arranging their belongings, the three men then left the key at the desk and headed off to New York's hotspots. Hours went by, they're getting a little tipsy. Got to the lobby desk finally, and were told that the elevator had developed some complications and they were not going to be able to make their way up via elevator. They were going to have to walk. So the three men huddled together and began to make their way up in the first flight. So that went quick, that went easy, but each flight seemed a little bit longer and the men kept pressing on floors five, floor six floor 7, and they were beginning to get tired. They are beginning to drag. By the 11th and the 12th and the 13th floor, they thought they were almost going to pass out. Almost halfway there, grumbled Lewis. The others grunted and pushed on. Each flight seemed like a, a mile, and it seemed as though it was going to take an eternity to get there, but the three men were now on their knees, crawling up, step by step in hopes of just getting to that 29th floor. Just one more to go. Finally, they reached the goal. As soon as they got to the door, you guessed it. Sam was the first to come to the door. Reached into his pocket for the key. Wasn't there. Asked John if he had it, but John said that he thought Lewis had it. They both looked at Lewis, but all he showed were empty pockets. All that effort. But they didn't have the key to get in. This is the story of religious unbelief. It's the story of Islam. The story of Buddhism. It's the story of much of the United States. 
all this religious effort, but lacking the key to get in. They're too busy with the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, attempting to receive and gain favor from God without first realizing that Genesis preceded Exodus, Abraham preceded Moses, grace preceded works, promise preceded law, the I will preceded the thou shalt, thou shalt not. You see what we got here? One of the great condensed teachings on the subject of grace. And he uses a Q&A to pull it off. And now to hammer the point home. He takes them to a second Q&A. Question. Q. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? In other words, would God oppose himself? Would law oppose promise? Would Moses oppose Abraham? And how does that work when Moses penned both Genesis and Exodus? <laughs> you can see their, their logic now just totally destroyed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through Paul's writings. As Paul now just dramatically says with exclamation point, absolutely not. Then adds these words. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture, back to the Word. That's why we stay in the Word. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is prisoner of sin. Circle the word prisoner. It is the same Greek word which was used to describe the closing of the nets in Luke chapter 5 after Peter had hauled in this tremendous catch of fish. The fish were enclosed, ensnared, trapped. He's saying that this entire world is ensnared and trapped in sin. We need to make the world aware of it so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's focused everybody on Christ. Might be given to those who believe. The promise is unconditional. The promise is unalterable. The promise is unending. And now you begin to embrace all that's here. And now you've got something to say to the Charles Namies of this world want to know show me where is the truth of the gospel take him to the scriptures take him to Jesus may we be a church that is committed in all aspects to this truth that Jesus came and died for our sins and we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's stand together. We are awed, Father, by the way in which you work, by what it is you have taught, and by how all 
history is part of a flow that is highly directional, pointing to Jesus in his first and second comings. And when we begin to look at it legally, historically, theologically, guided by the Spirit, we can see, Father, that Jesus is the center of it all. So if there's anyone in these services this morning or among our students in Green Bay where they have been secular or religious in their unbelief, break into that heart. Show them what Jesus Christ did was sufficient, complete, neither to be added to nor subtracted from. May he or she put faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. For this will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.